Welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Sebastian Gomes, an executive editor at America. And I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. In 1838, to save itself from financial ruin, the Jesuits at Georgetown University sold 272 enslaved persons. It's a shameful piece of history and one that the Jesuits are reckoning with, like many other communities and institutions today. But the historical record, in this case a bill of sale, has enabled thousands of descendants to recover their ancestry and to reunite for a better future. And toward that end, the Jesuits have pledged $100 million to start to a partnership with those descendants. It's called the Descendants Truth and Reconciliation Foundation. And while this marks one of the largest and most significant collaborations of its kind, that is between an association of descendants and a religious institution, it's not just about the money. It's about real reconciliation and transformation, which are much, much deeper work. J.D. Long Garcia, who is a senior editor at America, wrote an article for the May issue of America magazine called, With a $100 million pledge, Jesuits and descendants of enslaved people begin a path toward healing. And I spoke to J.D. about his reporting on this piece, and then I went to speak with some of the people that were featured in this article for Church Meets World. And after we play the story, Maggie and I will return to reflect a little bit on the meaning we each drew from it. So stick around for that. But first, here is Descendants and the Jesuits, Beginning a Path Toward Racial Healing. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Today, the Society of Jesus, who helped to establish Georgetown University and whose leaders enslaved and mercilessly sold your ancestors, stands before you to say that we have greatly sinned in our thoughts and in our words, in what we have done and in what we have failed to do. My editors at America asked me to write this article. Uh, it's it's one of those things oftentimes when we write about Jesuits that we're asked, to, the lay people on staff are asked to do the reporting on it so that we can be more objective about it. I'm J.D. Long Garcia, senior editor at America Media. When I started working on this story, I wasn't coming in with a naive perspective about the church being perfect. Um, I have <laughs> I've worked for the church long enough and in Catholic journalism long enough to know that the church is far from perfect. But at the same time, just being putting my myself in the place of those people that spent three weeks on the on a ship. Uh, I mean, I can't even I can't imagine like being on a ship uh, again having. The story J.D. was working on had been in the news for a few years. Maybe you've read about it yourself. In 1838, the Maryland Jesuits sold 272 enslaved persons to plantations in the Deep South to save Georgetown University from financial ruin. Maybe it comes as a surprise that the Catholic Church was one of the largest slaveholding institutions of the day. 
or that the Jesuit order, known today for its work on the margins, had a hand in this as well. For other Catholics, this comes as no surprise. JD had learned of the story years earlier, but still, reading the accounts again for himself, it made an impact. Um, Or even putting myself in the place of the fathers uh, and their children, um, the husband and wives that were separated because of this, that kind of thinking with or praying through in a way, their experiences really opened my eyes to the kind of suffering that took place back then. This has always been a part of our history, but it became news in 2016 when the New York Times wrote about a historical artifact. So the bill of sale is the record that they still maintained of the sale of these enslaved people that the Georgetown University uh, sold in order to make up for profit deficits that they were experiencing at the time. It was a sales receipt recovered from the annals of history that told the story. So when the sale happened, uh, it was the Maryland Jesuits who were the owners of the enslaved people. And this is dated in the 1830s, but the Maryland Jesuits had been owners of enslaved people for more than 100 years at that time. They grew tobacco, which is the major cash crop in the region. It's haunting to think about to me that most of the people that were that were sold by the Jesuits were under 20 years old and that um, there was 80 of them that were that were under 10. Um, I, I'm a father myself, and I, I, I can't imagine the, the pain that it must have been for those people to, to be sold and then possibly separated from their children. Um, the Jesuits did say that they wanted to keep their children together, the families together, but that wasn't always respected. It's ironic, really, that something as mundane as a bill of sale could be the key to unlocking this history. Not for academics, but for the thousands of living descendants who have never been able to trace their ancestry. Most of us knew only one, two generations back. And when we became aware of that, our thought went to, how do we restore dignity to our ancestors? What do we do about investing in future descendants and not ourselves. This is Joe Stewart. He's one of the founders and the president of the Descendants Truth and Reconciliation Foundation. JD interviewed him for America Magazine's YouTube channel. And that's something that Joe Stewart pointed out in our interview, that through this bill of sale, we actually know the names of the the individuals that that were sold. So in, in a way, the bill of sale was so dehumanizing became a way to to humanize their ancestors and make those connections. And it was that April 16th article in the New York Times that helped us identify our ancestors, ancestors who had been lost to us. We can't underestimate the personal impact this discovery had on descendants and their families. But it's bittersweet, of course. It connects Mr. Stewart and others to a longer lineage— but one marred by exploitation. So how do they go about restoring dignity to their ancestors? So the first thing we decided was we were not going to pursue monetary payments for us individually, but that the Jesuits should invest in the future of descendants through a partnership with us. 
we approach by saying we come to you with open hearts and extended hands. Together with a group called the GU-272 Descendants, Mr. Stewart approached the Jesuits. He went to Father Kosicki, president of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. Well, I, I don't believe that as a country or as a church, we have seriously reconciled uh, with, with a sin such as a slavery. What happens next is also historic. So when Father Kaziki is confronted with this, when, he, when he's approached by the descendants, what, what he does is he listens. And he was credited by a number of people that I interviewed. They spoke about how Father Kaziki actually stopped and he listened. So it wasn't, let's make this problem go away. Let's, it was, let's listen to this problem. Let's hear about this problem. Like this, let's make this problem known uh, in the general public. And, and let's admit our mistakes. And, and then let's work together toward reconciliation. Together, they formed the Descendants Truth and Reconciliation Foundation. And through that process, the Jesuits entered into this conversation with the descendants and decided that they were going to pledge to raise $100 million for, for this effort. And, and this goes on. The, the long-term goal is to raise a billion dollars towards this effort. The money raised by the organization will be set aside for the education of descendants for future generations. And it will provide direct relief to the impoverished, the infirm, and elderly. But for both Mr. Stewart and Father Kosicki, reconciliation is about more than fundraising. The most important investment we will make is in truth, racial healing, and transformation for people. No matter what kind of progress we would make legislatively or or otherwise could be sustained if racism and the remnants of slavery continues to exist in our lives and in our institutions. We think it's important for the entire church to face the truth of the past, not to be ashamed about it, not to continue to evade it, but to begin to take positive action about changing the future and not just running from the past. This, of course, is not easy work. We're talking about transforming a culture around one of the most shameful sins in the Catholic legacy. And shame, as we know, can be quite the stumbling block to confessing what we have done and what we have failed to do. But the sacramental act of reconciliation is what binds all of us Catholics. It's the story of our faith. We should be ashamed, but we can't live in that. And we need to let shame be a motivation for doing the right things to change the sin that was committed against humanity and against people and truly against the Catholic Church, who's supposed to be representing God in all of this. Anyone who says that slavery ended with emancipation should study history. That's all I can say, study history. To help us study that history, Let's hear from someone who knows it backwards and forwards. I am Joseph Brown. I have been a member of the Society of Jesus in the Midwest since 1962. I have been teaching in the Department of Africana Studies at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, Illinois, since 1997. I have certainly experienced racism in the Catholic Church because it was a notorious fact 
that in the Diocese of Belleville, starting in 1948, one of the most racist bishops in the history of modern Catholicism was Albert Zurawest, who refused to go along with what Cardinal Ritter did when he desegregated Catholic institutions in St. Louis, Missouri. Bishop Zurawest refused to do that in East St. Louis. So we had a segregated Catholic grade school as a mission school for the colored. And we also had uh, segregated hospitals. You were not, not segregated. You were not allowed into the Catholic hospital if you were black in East St. Louis. And so I was experiencing that from the age of eight. The racism that pervaded both the church and society at large didn't stop Father Brown or his family from claiming their Catholic faith. My family taught me what all of our Black Catholic families taught their children, that this was our church, that we were responsible for its continuance. I never felt like I had to adapt to someone else's definition of inferiority because my parents and our black Catholic community never ever acted out that sense of inferiority. We had lawyers, doctors, teachers, business people in the black Catholic community in East St. Louis. So one of my dearest friends in the world, Thea Bowman, Sister Thea Bowman was the only African-American member of the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. She worked tirelessly to break down racial barriers, especially in the Catholic Church. Yes, good morning. The bishops have just begun their morning prayer on the second and final public day of public uh, of discussion at the bishops' meeting in June 1989. When she made her famous statement at the bishops' conference in 1989, I come to my church fully functioning... What does it mean to be black and Catholics? Catholic, it means that I come to my church fully functioning. That doesn't frighten you, do, does it? I come to my church fully functioning. I bring myself, my black self, all that I am, all that I have, all that I hope to become. I bring my whole history, my traditions, my experience, my culture, my African-American song and dance and gesture and movement and teaching and preaching and healing and responsibility as gift to the church. I don't have to try to put my brain around what that means. I've always been in my church fully functioning. I will not let anybody define me as less than that, even though I have experienced those kinds of efforts all through my adult life as a Jesuit, as a Catholic, as a Black man. But what about the Society of Jesus? Was it any better than the Catholic Church at large? And why did it take an article in the New York Times for the Jesuits to confront their history of slaveholding? The story of the uh, enslavement of Africans has been a quiet issue in Jesuit history in the United States for as long as we've had Jesuit historians in the United States dealing with these kinds of things. And one of my classmates in philosophy studies did his master's thesis in history about Jesuits and enslavement. So because he was doing that, I knew about it. And it would be the kind of thing that I would have wanted to know anyway. I think my classmate wrote his master's thesis around 1968. 
But for me, the history was still shocking. I was very aware of the church's history of colonialism, but the Jesuits? This narrative doesn't align with the one that I've carried for so long, of Jesuit ministry to the most poor and underserved, to an intellectually honest Jesuit education that's grounded largely in a theology of human dignity and liberation. But this story raises a challenging question for any of us under the Jesuit Catholic umbrella. Who is telling the stories of justice that make us look and feel good, while conveniently forgetting other tales of injustice that also make up the Jesuit legacy? I think that the way history is taught in the United States has to be understood as an effort to maintain innocence. That the story is always told that there are heroes who surpass expectations and do wonderful, marvelous things for other people. The story is everywhere. I am a hero because I'm working with inner city boys. No, you're not a hero. But that's the American way. And in America, the male, white, privileged person is the focus of almost every great narrative. You don't need to look far for an example of this today. The Second Amendment of the Constitution, that the need for a militia being paramount in those days of the Constitutional Convention, citizens were allowed and encouraged to have guns. Well, the Southern slaveholders are the ones who wrote that constitution and put those amendments in there. And what was that about? It was about the fact that there had been over 50 major slave uprisings and rebellions by 1787 in this country. So that our police force was ring a bell and get all of the able-bodied white men to come out with guns and put down these insurrections and rebellions of the natives and the black folks. And that's how our policing system came out. And look at what's going on now. No matter what we're going to stop you for, we will pull a gun on you because that's been the story of American policing since 1789. Now, that's not the story we're being told. Everybody's got a right to have a gun unless you're a Black Panther, unless you are one of the black deacons in Louisiana during the civil rights movement. Black people with guns are criminals. White people with guns are citizens and patriots. So how do we change the narrative? Well, first, we start by redefining the we in that statement. If we're talking about our Catholic sisters and brothers, then there shouldn't be an us that is giving charitably to a them. But very often, that's not what we hear. In 1979, I think it was 1979, when the Catholic bishops published an article on racism called Brothers and Sisters to Us. That's the incredible example for me. They are brothers and sisters to us. And the most recent letter on racism has the same rhetorical distinctions. This is what we must do to make them feel more welcome into the church. Well, thank you, Sister Thea, but it's my church already. So therefore, 
move over because I'm supposed to be sitting at this table. One way to flip the script is through a phrase, one that Mr. Stewart introduced into the conversation when he gathered with the Jesuits to launch their foundation. The phrase, nothing about us without us, was brought up at that great meeting with some of the survivors, some of the descendants with the Jesuits a few years ago. You do not speak for me. You do not tell me what I need and what's best for me. J.D. recalls this as well. Something that Mr. Stewart said, he said in the past, but he said it again in our interview, and I'll continue to think about it, is that the, nothing about us without us. And uh, it, it's, it's very logical, but regrettably uncommon. So, so often it's the elite class or the, the people with money that are deciding how to help the poor people without even including the poor people in, in the equation. This Catholic Church isn't, doesn't belong to white Catholics and we're making space for uh, minority Catholics. This, the Catholic Church belongs to all of us together. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because of thy just punishments, but most of all because they offend thee, my God. We have to go before the Lord and say, we have strayed from our path, O Lord. We come back now to be healed. In a way, we can't have that conversion unless we go through something that's like a sacrament. We can't have that conversion without acknowledging these past sins um, and then receiving this forgiveness. The hardest thing in the world to do rhetorically is to say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Truth and reconciliation. That is our work. And it's the work of many institutions worldwide that are just beginning to acknowledge centuries of oppression and make reparations for the indelible damage done upon generations of people. And perhaps most importantly for this deep work is the sacrament of reconciliation. The blueprint for healing goes back to the Gospels, but it wasn't always as we see it in the movies. A private confessional with a screen separating priest and penitent or the way it's often presented in Catholic catechesis. When we are set free from our burdens and are forgiven and healed, we can truly be joyful again. And after we shed our sins in the confessional, we'll feel like a hundred pound weight is lifted off. And the best part is that Jesus loves to forgive. He's anxious to forgive. Will we give him that chance? Now, this may be a fine introduction for kids, but it doesn't fully capture everything at work within the sacrament. Now, we have to know the history of that sacrament, that it was only in the 17 and 1800s that it became a private sacrament. It was always a public sacrament. And in the Jewish tradition, when you had to go and repent your sins, it was the nation that did it. God called the nation back from their sinful behaviors. They had to go into the temple. This was a public act because sin is a public act of pain. Father Kosicki again. What are the historic sins in our faith? Now, why we have a hard time reconciling with that 
there's a great deal of shame associated with this history. When you start hearing those stories, it, 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 it can lead you to a feeling of shame and fear, but also conversion and hope. And um, I, I think that we, we as a country, I don't feel, have, have thoughtfully reconciled with the sin of slaveholding. And uh, until we do so, I think we're going to continue to see that resistance. The nation has sinned. And yet, each of us individually makes up the nation. And we're either benefiting from that legacy or continuing to struggle beneath its heavy yoke. And so those of us benefiting from it must make a confession in public. And our penance must also be a communal act of making things right. If we've got so much television, from Oprah to Dr. Phil, people are happy to go on television and tell everything that's wrong with them and confess and tell about everybody else what's wrong with them. We can easily do this because it's how you reconcile family. You sit down, you have an intervention if necessary, but you sit down and say, baby, I'm sorry for what I did. Can you ever forgive me? I'm so glad you brought that up. And I got something to tell you. That's how families reunite and bring grace back into the circle. Why can't we use that as a model? And I give the Society of Jesus all the credit in the world. I give the descendants all the credit. I give Father Kosicki all the credit. They want to learn what has been done wrong and live in such a way as to say, we will restore the breach. And as J.D. adds, none of this would have happened without the initiative of Mr. Stewart and the GU-272 descendants. Another part of right, working on the story that really challenged me in my, my personal life is how Mr. Stewart enters into this uh, and with the generosity of his heart. It, I, I don't know, I get a little choked up just thinking about how, um, how big of a person does it take to, um, to be willing to have this conversation at all. But, um, but Mr. Stewart is a practicing Catholic. He's, he's never left his faith. So to be able to do that, to be able to like really like forgive um, and move forward together and to approach um, the Catholic Church and the Jesuits with an open heart, that's a challenge, a deep challenge to me as a Catholic, to be able to put aside things that have been done against me or against my family or like the, the, even the smallest things that I still hang on to, that he's able to put not to put aside, really, but, but to forgive and move forward with with this grave sin is really a challenge, and I think saintly. If you're interested in learning more about the Descendants or giving to the Descendants Truth and Reconciliation Foundation, please visit Descendants.org. There's a wealth of information there, and it's a great place to start. That was Descendants and the Jesuits beginning a path toward racial healing. Maggie, you were the lead producer and the writer uh, of this really, really powerful episode of Church Meets World. One thing that I noticed when I was reading through it and then listening to it again is just how prominent the concept of reconciliation 
is in this episode. I know you did that intentionally, but also this connection with the sacramental nature of reconciliation. And you connected it to the sacrament itself, which is obviously very, very Catholic and very important. But what drew you to that link? Well, Father Brown was the first to make the connection in JD's reported piece and in a lot of the videos that I watched with Father Brown. He talks about this as uh, like a sacrament of reconciliation. And there's just so much depth to this sacrament and to the metaphor at play. I think many of us have probably grown up with the idea of the sacrament as a private affair. You know, you go into a confessional. You whisper your sins. We still have a lot of shame around that, and it and it prevents a lot of people from receiving the sacrament. But properly understood, the sacrament of reconciliation is much larger, and you know has historical roots that were public that people would publicly bring forth uh, their sins, their transgressions to the bishop or, you know, to the community. And and also as a community, right? I mean, not just as individuals. So there's a collective element to this as well. Yeah, that a nation, like the Jewish nation also would come forward collectively with right. their sins. And that felt really apropos for our nation, which has this long lineage of exploitation and sin. And so we have to, of course, reckon with it not in private, but in public, and not just as individuals, but as a collective. And I, I just, I felt these parallels were um, too striking to ignore, and and really, really prescient for this conversation. Yeah, it's so fascinating that you know a lot of people, modern people, will will look at the Catholic Church and something like the Sacrament of Reconciliation and think, oh, how out of touch and out of date it is. But here's a real application that points to, like you said, the not only the individual, which is important, but the collective responsibility for sin. And especially when we're talking about systemic racism, uh, as we are today uh, so much, and trying to grapple with it and try to understand it and see and notice it where it is in all of these different systems and organizations and institutions that all of us are a part of, what a powerful, powerful um, way to understand the disunity and the divisions that are still between us, right? And and uh, and having a space like the Sacrament of Reconciliation applicable to much broader principles and broader experiences and realities is just so important. So it's a great message, too, that the Church has for the world today. Well, and also the work that is being done is new, but the dynamic at play is very old. And, you know, the the word that comes up most frequently in these conversations is shame. And the way that we metabolize shame in our spiritual lives, um, Father Kaziki, you know, was able to sit and listen and confront the source of shame. But this can also be a stumbling block uh, for individuals and for communities to reckon with the past. And so we have this sacramental toolkit at our disposal, and it really can, I think, offer a way forward. Thanks very much, Maggie. That was uh, very, very enlightening work and good reporting. So thanks for that. 
And that does it for this episode of Church Meets World. We hope you enjoyed listening to it, that you learned something. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review if you can. Let your friends and family know about the show as well. That's a great way to get the word out. And we'll be back with a new episode accompanying our June issue of America Magazine. Church Meets World is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by us, Sebastian Gomes and Maggie Van Dorn, with assistance from Kevin Christopher Robles, sound design by Rebecca Seidel. It was based on an article for America Magazine written by senior editor J.D. Long Garcia, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Please support this show and all of our podcasts by becoming a subscriber. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe today. Thanks for listening.